Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 14th of April with me, Ian Welsh. A bumper podcast this week. Coming up are some more reflections on the recent Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Conference in London from eBay's Chris Gale and World Business Council for Sustainable Development's Ruth Thomas. And ahead of the upcoming Sustainable Apparel and Textiles event, I spoke with Usha Yarns, Managing Director Anurag Gupta, about the business's products made using pre-consumer recycled cotton and PET. First though, it's time for some sustainable business news. An era of falling power sector emissions may not be far off, according to a new global electricity review from think tank Ember. Renewable and nuclear power combined accounted for 39% of total global electricity generation in 2022, a new annual high. While nuclear power fell in the year, solar grew 24% and wind power grew 17%. The report concludes that power sector emissions may have peaked, but admits the pace of emissions reductions is hard to predict. Ember says that we are entering a clean power era, but that further progress will be determined by action now to continue progress. For any chance of achieving the Paris Agreement's 1.5 Celsius pathway, solar, wind and other sources of renewable power must continue to maintain rapid growth rates. The Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market has published 10 core carbon principles for governing the $2 billion and growing market following a two-year review process. The principles cover factors such as how carbon projects cut emissions, indigenous community rights, and what information projects should make public. However, carbon watchers have pointed out that the big emission from the new principles is indeed significant. There is no detailed guidance as to how carbon credits can be part of a company's commitments and concurrently part of a country's Paris Agreement decarbonisation obligations. It appears that this has been kicked down the road until 2025 at the earliest. How profits from carbon trading should be utilised is also something the ICBCM has left open. One option is for some profit to be channeled towards a United Nations climate adaptation programme. Some prefer for adaptation to be instead mandated at a carbon project level, pointing to the additional bureaucracy that engaging with the UN would inevitably bring. The new principles do require that carbon credit certifiers reveal who buys the carbon credits and how they are used, but not details of how revenues are used by local communities, as had been speculated. While some important criteria remain open, the principles do seem to have been largely welcomed and will help enhance the quality of carbon credits. Some of the biggest companies in the US are subject to an investigation by two US senators into migrant child labour in their supply chains following a New York Times report into malpractices linked to Walmart, PepsiCo, General Motors, Whole Foods and others. The senators have asked the companies to specifically disclose how they screen suppliers and train in-house to prevent child exploitation. In a letter sent to the CEOs of each of the 27 companies the New York Times named, the senators ask that the companies examine hiring procedures, workplace safety and compliance with wage and hour laws as they apply to children. They state that staff must be fully trained in federal and state child labour laws and that companies should have robust whistleblower schemes in place. The companies are due to respond by late April. Etihad has become the latest airline to be sanctioned by the UK's Advertising Standards Agency for greenwashing. The ESA has required Etihad to remove some advertising on social media that promoted its flights on the basis of lower environmental impact because of reduced plastic use and more efficient aircraft and stated that passengers flying with the airline were making a conscious choice for the planet. The ESA ruled that these claims were exaggerated, that reducing single-use plastic was not sufficient to classify aviation as sustainable. It also said that even with more efficient aircraft, aviation continues to make a substantial contribution to climate change. Other airlines to have been recently criticised for greenwashing include Lufthansa, KLM and Austrian Airlines. At Innovation Forum's recent Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Conference in London last month, I spoke with some of the participants to reflect on the conversations and discussion. Coming up is eBay's UK's Head of Social Impact, Chris Gale. First, though, is the World Business Council for Sustainable Development's Director for Food and Agriculture, Ruth Thomas. 
So we're going to be reflecting on the Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Forum and a session that you're speaking on responsible sourcing and sustainable rural development. So Ruth, what does effective rural development look like? I think for food and agriculture, for it to be effective, it really needs to generate a thriving rural economy, which of course is one of the key factors essential to a thriving agribusiness sector. And this economy has really got to be underpinned by decent work, enabling farmers and rural workers to afford a decent quality of life and standard of living. Obviously, a big part of this is access to finance. And that's something that we were talking about in the event sessions. You know, it's been a big issue for some time. So how can rural SMEs access the finance necessary for the sustainable rural development that they want to encourage? Yeah, I'm really glad that you pick up on SMEs. They're the economic backbone of virtually every economy in the world and generate most of the new jobs created. They really diversify a country's economic base and promote innovation. So they're really an important and often overlooked segment of the value chain. They also play a really critical role as potential employers for farmers seeking to move away from farming, as well as off-takers from small farmers and suppliers to larger businesses. But you're right, because really, despite this role, they are really underserved largely by financial institutions because of the high transaction costs and risks and low returns compared with other sectors. And just a quick example of one thing that we did on this agenda was with pro bono support from an impact investor, Arthur Networks. We hosted an online digital tool to connect SMEs to sources of finance. We're in lesson learning mode right now. And one lesson we've learned is the need to focus on specific commodities or regions. I do think it's important, Ian, though, that we don't also overlook access to markets. And I'm really excited, for example, that we're planning work with the Pharma Income Lab and IDH this year on inputting into work, work to build a framework for responsible procurement practices, which is a really critical piece of this puzzle. Another thing that's a big issue that is continually talked about is the importance of empowering women. Why is women's empowerment so important in this area? Gender inequalities hamper women's capacity and potential to be the game-changing force multiplier that we know they are. At the local level, the participation of women in land management is associated with better governance and outcomes, and they play a much stronger role than men in land and water management and food security. We also know that women are more likely than men to invest income back into their families. And when the status of women improves, poverty is reduced, nutrition improves and agricultural productivity increases. As again, as a small example, last year, we convened our working group on human rights in agriculture on women's empowerment with expert speakers. And we also hosted one of our agri SME digital finance platforms, the pilots that I mentioned earlier, for women owned SMEs in Indonesia. What are the metrics that you see that best measure the success of all these social programmes? What should we be looking for and what should businesses involved be thinking about measuring? I'm going to quote a colleague of ours from last week's event who said, complexity is everywhere, context is everything. And it's really hard because social impacts are so very context specific. Living incomes and wages is certainly emerging as a bit of a front runner in the search for meaningful social metrics. And it's one agenda that we at WBCSD and the Food and Agriculture team are leaning into quite a bit, both through our working groups and helping to build company capacity and also our role in the Post Food Systems Summit Coalition of Action on Decent Work. Ruth, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks very much for your reflections on the event. I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Ian. I'm joined by Chris Gill, Head of Social Impact UK with eBay. Welcome, Chris. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. eBay has been leveraging its brand power to empower migrant workers. What are your migrant worker programs? Yes, yeah, so eBay's got a big purpose, a very ambitious purpose of economic opportunity for all. And for us, that means really supporting economic opportunity for underserved communities and being proactive about that in the UK. We have just developed a new program that is focused on refugee entrepreneurs specifically. We also have a program working with black women entrepreneurs. But the Refugee Entrepreneurship Program is a partnership with an organization called Entrepreneurial Refugee Network that works with refugee entrepreneurs. And we provide them with a three-month one-to-one coaching program that really helps you to understand how do you navigate eBay, utilize all of the different tools and skill sets, et cetera, on eBay, but also someone that starts to get to know you and your business and gets you to try some stuff. If that doesn't work, try something else. So that goes for three months, then they get zero fees for 12 months, and then it's really about peer-to-peer learning as well. And that's driven more by our partner, Turn, given they know the complexities of what it is to be a refugee in the UK. That's the problem. Okay, and then what are the barriers to success for you? The biggest barriers is really scale in this space. So a lot of the refugee support services are focused on employment in the UK. Employment outcomes are pretty horrific for refugees in the UK. And we think that there's an opportunity to invest much more in refugee entrepreneurship. But there are very few providers out there. Turner, the biggest, they probably work with about a couple of hundred entrepreneurs a year. That's the biggest challenge is scale. Why do you think that eBay is so particularly well placed to help in this way? There's very low barriers to entry to getting started on eBay. You don't have to do the nine to five. You can balance it around the challenges that you've got within your own life or your day-to-day employment. Those barriers to entry, low capital to start with. You can start trialing some stuff. You, some people just start selling stuff from around the house, start to build up a bit of capital, then invest that into the products that they really want to grow their business behind. And I think that's the biggest thing that eBay can offer. We shared in the session, we've just been on some frustrations at the way that uh, legislation is evolving in the UK. What do you want to see from the UK government? First and foremost, we should be having a political and media narrative that treats refugees as people and the challenge humanely. And I think that has deviated slightly the wrong way in recent years. There's some very practical stuff that we could do right now. And the one that I would hook around is the right to work. I know it's not an entrepreneurship focus, but I think providing asylum seekers with the right to work so that they're not reliant on their 30 odd pounds a week that they are reliant on the moment, which has drives people into destitution, means that they can't start to rebuild their lives. We know that the majority of decisions end up being granted refugee status, so why not let people just start doing that straight away? There are clear win-wins in this freebie in developing migrant worker-driven businesses. What are the key points that you would highlight to encourage other businesses to develop similar programs? Just from an eBay point of view, our whole focus is on being the most inclusive marketplace in the UK, and that's why we do this work, and we think we need to be very proactive around that. We talk about our purpose being economic opportunity for all. There are systemic barriers that mean that certain communities aren't able to take advantage of those opportunities, and that's why we do it. I was at Ben & Jerry's before eBay, and the whole Ben & Jerry's point was be vocal about this work because it drives loyalty. And I think that's what we want to do more at eBay. And I think for businesses in the UK, if you care about climate change, you should be caring about displacement because the two are going to go more and more hand in hand. It's been a fascinating discussion. It was a fascinating session we were on earlier. Chris Gale from eBay, thanks very much. Thank you. Innovation Forum is going to be in Amsterdam at the end of the month for the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference. Ahead of this, I spoke with Managing Director of Indian Sustainable and Recycled Yarn Business, Usha Yarns, Anurag Gupta. Your website describes Usha Yarns as a sustainable textile company. How are your recycled fibres made? The fibres that we use are 90% recycled materials. The cotton comes from recycling pre-consumer cotton textiles. And the polyester consume comes from recycling post-consumer bottle waste. 
pre-consumer then, that presumably is waste from other textile businesses when they're making their products, the stuff that they don't use, the, the offcuts, that's what you can use. Exactly. We recycle them and make them into fresh yarn, very high quality. How does the footprint of a garment made from your fibres compared with a garment from traditional virgin fibres? Let's take carbon, water, chemical use in terms. In terms of carbon, how does the footprint of your garments differ? This is a claim which one has to be very careful about. What we've done is we've gone ahead and completed the assessment, self-assessment and verification of the environmental impact of our facilities and our recycling process on the Higgs Index. For the moment, in spite of all the noise around, the Higgs Index still remains a more reliable or acceptable or standardized format for such assessments. If we compare the products of Mushayans vis-a-vis other virgin materials on the same index, assessed on the same software, it is very clear that the impact almost on all parameters, water, carbon, eutrophication, is half or less than half of most of the virgin fiber. What other impacts are there then? Mostly you mentioned just now carbon, water, what in terms of perhaps chemical use? How do your processes differ in terms of chemical use? Chemical use is probably one of the biggest advantages since we are using colored materials and we are segregating them color-wise and standardizing them in terms of uh, sorting. We do not need to dye the yarns again. So the whole of the process of dyeing is eliminated if you are using our products. The bigger uh, challenge, which uh, bigger advantage is that you don't have to rely on virgin cotton. So virgin cotton, the growing process itself informs a lot of chemical usage. So you are saving on chemical usage at the stage of growing cotton and you're also saving on chemical usage at the dying stages. Where do you source your feedstock from currently? The feedstock comes from the garment factories within India and also from neighboring countries. How are you going to go about sourcing more pre-consumer waste cotton? Well, there are enough factories within India. We are also considering setting up more manufacturing facilities closer to the sources of cotton waste. And I tell you that there is still enough garment waste available. As the concept of recycling gains momentum, definitely more and more people would want to use it which could result in an increase in the value of waste, which we had no value till some time ago. The waste is there, and the challenge is to be able to pay well for it and to use it to its maximum potential and turn out good quality products. Remind us, what's the percentage of pre-consumer cotton and PET plastic? What's the percentage you use currently in your fibers? What we've done, we used a lot of different blends, but the current blend that we are promoting all the time is a 60% cotton and 40% polyester product because to our analysis, that product is pretty much standardized in terms of performance and quality. So we, while we are doing recycling materials, we have to make sure that the product is reasonably assured in terms of quality and performance. However, having said that, we are doing a lot of other products where the polyester percentages are lesser or higher depending on customer demand. So it's not impossible to do those products. 
but the product 6040 is one which really standardized and good for anyone and as you go forward are you planning to introduce more cotton and less pet is that your long-term plan yes so we are looking at a lot of different products 100 percent cotton products products blended with viscose fibers products blended with chemically recycled fibers we are looking at several options and we've done a lot of pilots so let's see, I mean, how the market evolves and into the usage of those products. You talked about there's plenty of pre-consumer cotton products available. Are you finding that getting feedstock of the right quality is a limit on your business's growth? The idea of recycling and the idea of getting feedstock of right quality actually are conflicting. If we are talking of recycling, then we need to bring ourselves to the ability, increase our ability to use all that comes in and still be able to deliver a quality product. We are, our raw material is not man-grown or machine-made raw material where we expect it to be of the same quality all the time. So the art of manufacturing, the art of recycling is not only about sourcing the quality, it is more about how you sort it, how you use it, how you recycle it. So, I mean, this is a very, very normal business challenge for a recycler to be able to use all kinds of waste and still be able to deliver a quality product. I do not see that as a barrier to the growth of recycling. I see that as an opportunity. What have been the principal drivers behind your sustainability approach? We have been on this journey for more than a decade now. It has been a slow and patient journey. And suddenly, we find ourselves in the middle of action. In the present scenario, there is an ever-increasing focus on recycling and sustainability and from all quarters, be it retailers, brands, customers or government. So the principal driver, of course, initially was to take up a challenging product and from there to build the DNA of recycling and sustainability within the company and suddenly with the whole world focusing on it, we are there doing what we are doing. I mean, are you finding your customers, consumer brands, are they demanding more sustainable fibers? Yes, customers, brands, retailers, Governments, everybody is focusing, demanding, looking at recycling very seriously. Are you hearing from your customers, from the manufacturers, are consumers demanding these things as well? I wouldn't know whether the consumers are actually demanding it, but they are definitely happy to use it if it is available. And I guess consumers often rely on their brands. They rely on the brands that they trust to be delivering more sustainable, better quality garments, assuming that the brands that are working with their suppliers to do this. To what extent do you see sustainable fibres mainstreaming in the apparel sector? If I'm not wrong, I think there is no doubt or confusion to the fact that sustainability is something that we cannot do without. So sustainable fibers being mainstreamed is something which is inevitable. It has to happen. It will not stop till it is 100%. The question is how fast and how or when. So that can be a question. Otherwise, I don't see a doubt in the fact that we don't have an option to my mind. 
the way the global heating and the way people have started thinking 2030 SPTI, SDG. So the world has suddenly woken up and I think it won't stop till it has been completed. The direction of travel is very evident. So for your 60-40 current fibre, how are garments that are made from that, how are they recycled? They can again be recycled. They can be sent in for mechanical recycling to next life, which would not be a garment probably, or a coarse yarn for some whole textiles applications or insulation, or be sent in for chemical recycling. The growth of chemical recycling does seem to be one of the solutions that will really revolutionize the reuse of fibers. Yes, the world is watching and very excited about chemical recycling. Even we are very happy to see it happening. One life as mechanical recycling and another as after chemical recycling would probably be ideal to reduce impact. I really look forward to maturing of the chemical recycling businesses that are coming up here. In the context of all of these new solutions developing and innovations that you're developing yourselves, what's next for Usha Yarns? We're in the middle of activities, so there's a huge world of opportunities available out there. It can start from newer raw materials, newer products, newer applications, multiple geographies, and move on to new technologies. There's clearly an awful lot of opportunities in this sector and many innovations moving forward. Thank you very much indeed for outlining what you're doing at Usha Yarns. Thank you very much, Jan. The Division 4 website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Alongside our conferences, our webinar season continues next week, when we'll be discussing ESG and incentives that work on 21st of April, and then on 27th of April, when we'll be talking about implementing regenerative agriculture at scale with Nestle. There are links to these webinars in the podcast description, and full details are available on the Innovation Forum website. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.